I'm aware that the University of Arizona is playing today. <laughs> That's not lost on me, and I usually preach for about a half an hour or so. <laughs> There's a whole world in those two words, isn't there? Um, but I have already prayed. I'm going to consider my prayer of invocation, our prayer for illumination. We've asked for God to open our eyes. Let's turn to our sermon text and listen as I read. It's actually um, not exactly what's printed there. I'll, I'll be hitting on that, next, that text there next week. But this week I'll be on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. This is God's eternal word. It's always true. Let's give attention to it. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. We're in a leadership transition here at Desert Springs and we seek to continue the emphasis in this pulpit that Dennis, the previous pastor, began when he started drawing our attention to this idea of becoming a missional church. As a result, when I was asked to fill the pulpit on an interim basis by the elders, I began a series of sermons which I have called Lessons on Leadership for a Missional Church. And we've been studying the first century New Testament letter Paul wrote to Timothy over the past couple of months. And our interest has been to learn about this idea of missional church leadership. Church leadership to some ears, may sound like an oxymoron. Church people, after all, aren't leaders. They're either, on the one hand, out-of-touch, irrelevant ritualists, or, on the other hand, angry fundamentalists working out their aggressions amidst a cult-like band of followers. (laughs) And that tends to be, for people outside the church and for people questioning Christianity, that tends to be the impression, and sometimes for people inside the church as well, if we're honest. But even though modern people rarely have a category for true church or pastoral leadership, it is a reality. And it is that reality that is primarily driving Paul to write these words to Timothy. In fact, it was partly due to Paul's pastoral leadership that Timothy himself became a convert to the Christian faith back in the first century. Now, in this letter, Paul is trying to train Timothy for the ministry. And I'm guessing that Paul didn't have to, to, to work hard at this. And I've actually made this case that 
I believe everything that Paul has said here, he's already said to Timothy in person or shown Timothy in person and that he's explicitly stating them here not for Timothy himself but for the, the leaders and the people in Ephesus where Timothy's at. Speaking of Ephesus, this is where Timothy has been left to minister. It's the ancient city where there was a power struggle going on and Paul himself was unable to be present personally to correct it. And so he sent Timothy. He left him in Ephesus, we read in the first few verses of this letter. He left him in Ephesus to, to arrange things and to clarify, to correct, and to teach certain persons, we read, not to teach strange doctrine. Timothy's job was to fix the abuses that were taking place in this church. I've, I've worked hard to show that the problems in Ephesus were not primarily organizational or checklist style, as I've said. This isn't fundamentally a book of lists, even though a, a cursory reading or a casual reading might lead you to think, okay, here's the list for elders, here's the list for prayer, here's the list for deacons, here's the list for, for pastors, here's the list for this, that, and the other. I've tried to show again and again that the neglect in Ephesus wasn't so much related to a bad church practice, but bad church beliefs. Let me just run through what I think are the top five passages in this letter that prove this point. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever. Amen. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 4, 9-11 to because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. And then finally, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. With this selection of passages, I think we get an, in, in a glimpse, if you will, or a glass window into the engine of this letter. What's operating this letter, what's driving this letter, what's moving this letter is, is the following, I think, th very, three very simple ideas. This letter was written so that Timothy could clear up the problems in Ephesus before Paul got there. This letter, for all of its specific checklist character, is profoundly based on the radical, life-changing work of the perfect life, perfect death, and perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the good confession that Timothy is to hold to. This is the fight that Timothy is to wage. And it's departing from this that the leaders in Ephesus have created so much havoc and so much trouble. It's leaving the simple doctrine that Jesus saves, that Jesus died, that Jesus lives. It's the complicating of the faith that has created dissension in Ephesus and not the, not the opposite. As I was thinking about this, if you're new to Christianity or exploring the faith, this kind of makes sense. If you're an outsider kind of looking in on the church, it makes sense to you because in your mind, probably, if, if you're like me when I was looking in on the church, it would, it would make sense the church is all about its most prominent figure, Jesus. And that it probably bugs you that the church appears to be about so much else besides Jesus. So that for an outsider looking in, when he sees believers or she sees believers or Christians arguing about things besides Jesus, there's a, there's a discord. There's a, a cognitive dissonance, as a psychologist might put it. What's that about? I thought this was a Jesus community. And so I think it makes sense as an outsider that you read this letter by Paul and you see him so strongly emphasizing the basics, even we might say the fundamentals. And you might admit that you don't understand everything about Jesus, but you know at least this, that the church is supposed to be about Jesus. And so I think as modern believers then, it's important for us to recognize that we shouldn't stand aloof at these first century troubles that we read in the Bible as if somehow that was their problem. But, but we've, we've come so far from the primitive times. But we can see as we read this letter that, in fact, not a lot has changed. The Christians, the believers, still have trouble focusing on the simple fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And it's almost like we see this as the elementary teaching and then we want to move on to grad school, you know, TULIP and Reformed theology. What happens, though, if you're really about the faith is that once you get into grad school, you realize that all of that stuff is what's moving this basic engine that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that the growth that happens in your life happens when you more fully and more, more completely acknowledge the very simple truth that we all learned in Sunday school, at least those of us that were raised in the church. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And that, if anything, that's what we need more of. We need more of that. More of that in a lot of ways. 
So that's a kind of a recap I felt would be helpful as we begin this morning's message on mercy ministry, because we have a passage that outlines in kind of a checklist style what we're looking for when we talk about people in the church that are called to serve and to minister as deacons, as, as mercy ministers. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take this sermon in two parts. First, I'm going to give an overview of the text that I read in 1 Timothy 3. And then I'm going to go to another passage in the Bible, a parable of Jesus, where I think it actually shows us the kind of life that we want deacons to live. Mercy ministers are called to live. First part then, 1 Timothy 3. The text in 1 Timothy 3 that, that we read speaks profoundly to one aspect of mercy ministry. Not all of it, but one aspect of it. And that aspect is this, the character of the men who are ordained to the diaconate. I'm going to repeat that. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's three phrases there that I want to emphasize. The character, number one, the character. Number two, of the men who are ordained. Number three, to the diaconate. Character, men who are ordained to the diaconate. That's the first part of my sermon this morning. I'm going to take them in this order. Character, diaconate, men who are ordained. So you see how I'm going to do that? Character, first of all. There are myriad values, even though there's only a list of six or seven here. They really touch on a myriad of issues related to the character of deacons, of the work of being a deacon. Most of these character qualities, though, I've already expounded in a previous sermon that I gave on ruling eldership, what it means to be an elder or, or an overseer in the church. If you'd like to listen to that, it's a podcast that you can get or a, an MP3. I think I even uploaded my manuscript to the website, and I'd encourage you to listen to that, where I go through one character quality at a time. The character qualities here are mostly the same. There are some that are different. And uh, one of our deacons, actually, Keith and I had a conversation about this passage. And I haven't talked to Keith about this yet. He can correct me later. But he, gave, he wrote down some of his thoughts on, on uh, what these different character qualities mean. It's actually very well written, Keith. And if, if, if you're open, I'd, I'd love for us to post that to the web also or for him to modify it if he wants to modify it. But it's a really good summary kind of going through several of these character qualities. It's good to know that one of our deacons is, is able to think through that and, and so forth. So character. It's important that deacons have good character. The second part, which is the third thing that I mentioned, the diaconate. What is a deacon? Diaconate is a, is a word that comes from the word deacon which comes from the Greek word, which means servant. And so this is an, an office, if you will, of service. We see this word deacon actually lots of places in the Bible that we don't realize because we're probably not reading it in Greek. For example, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Deacon is used in both cases. Wow. So the Son of Man did not come to be served. Could you please get me some more olives? <laughs> right? But to serve. Would you like some more olives? That's why Jesus came. He did not come to, if you will, get deaconed, but to be a deacon. Jesus is a deacon. 
We also read about this phrase many times in the New Testament, if not the actual word, the idea of the word, where you see the words one another. This is a great study, by the way. If you get a, get a computer and you know, put it in quotes one another and limit the search to the New Testament and just see what verses come up that include that phrase one another. Every one of those passages relates to deaconing. Because guess what? A person that can't see the person across from him or her, the person who can't see the other, can't serve that person. And we know this because little children can't see other people. It's all about me, right? And you have to teach children to say please. You have to teach them to say thank you. You have to teach them to be aware that there are other people in the world besides you. Some children never learn that lesson, right? Grown-ups who are still childlike in that way. Here, I thought of a couple of examples. I didn't do a, a careful search on this, but, but you can certainly add to this list if you'd like. But I thought the best example is where Jesus says, love one another. That's deaconing, isn't it? You can't love someone else if, you can't serve, if you're not prepared to serve them. In fact, it's in serving other people that we see our love for other people. Here's another example that I really like. This one's from Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens. So here's the picture. We're in Arizona. Some of us are hikers. Your partner has a heavy, heavy backpack, okay? And you have a light backpack. You say, time out, take off the pack, right? And they drop it down to the knee because it's one of those heavy ones. And you say, let me take some of that. And you put some of the stuff that's in their pack in your pack. Now, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, be careful, don't take too much. Make sure that you take the right amount that you can handle because it's a long hike, right? So one anothering in Galatians 6 involves determining, actually seeing the burdens that others have and in a sense lifting them off their shoulders, at least the ones that you are uniquely qualified and equipped to handle. I'll be honest, I'm a pastor. There are some burdens I cannot bear for you. But as a man, as a human being, one bur- there are burdens that I can help you bear. So we need a whole body of people here. So I can deacon in some ways. I can serve you and bear burdens in some ways. Like, for example, I'm told that I'm a good listener. And I'm a, I, I listen well to people. I don't always know what to do with what I hear. But I can listen. And sometimes, isn't that what we need? We need somebody who listens. But others of you are very good at, at taking the, the things that you hear and now translating it into, into concrete action. So it takes an entire body of deacons, doesn't it? You see where I'm going with this. Here's another one. I love this from Romans 12. Give preference to one another in honor. No, you first. No, you first. No, let me pay. No, I insist. Let me pay. I go out, I've gone out to lunch with a couple of people in the congregation since I've been an interim pastor, and I've insisted on paying. And we've gotten into a little bit of a tussle there. It's kind of ugly. The waitress or this waiter is waiting, and you know we're fighting, and, and chairs are getting knocked over. We'll be right with you. But that should, if there's a competition in the church, it ought to be a competition to serve. No, I insist, let me serve. No, 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 let me serve. And what's funny is, in that competition, you discover that sometimes the hardest thing is to be served. 
Are you like that? Are you like me in that regard? Boy, sometimes the hardest thing for me to do is to let someone else wash my feet. These stinky dogs, you know what I mean? It's like, no, I don't want to expose those to anybody. So I think there are many examples of this idea of one anothering in, in the church, but I'm talking about the diaconate. And so deaconing is something that every person in the church is called to do. If Jesus was a deacon, and if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You were called to deacon. Greater love hath no man than this, than he what? Lay down his life. And Jesus didn't do it for a friend either. He did it for an enemy. So we have a lot of work to, to do in this area of deaconing. So I get to this third point, men who are ordained. It's clear to many, but not all believers, that the text Paul is speaking about in the text Paul is speaking of male and not female deacons. This is a controversy that's, that's boiling over in, in the PCA right now, actually. And historically, Presbyterian and Reformed people have debated just what is the nature or character of the diaconate. Does it include women? Are there such things as deaconesses? Is it a female deacon or a female deaconess? Or do we have assistants to the deacons who are female? Or do we have no deacons? just elders, and then men and women who do deaconing, right? Do we elect women as deacons? Do we appoint them to do diaconal ministry? Do we pray for them in public? Does the elders set them apart? How do we do this? And, and different branches of the Presbyterian tradition have come up with different answers to that. Our tradition, the PCA, says that only men are to be ordained as deacons. Only men but that men and women both are to do deaconing. And then it kind of leaves it to the churches to figure out how to make that work. And so a common practice or pattern in the PCA is this thing we call women in the church. It's a, it's a board that many PCA churches have, a WIC, women in the church, a WIC board, where women are appointed by the session, sometimes elected by the congregation, sometimes set apart by the session, to do diaconal work. Their relationship with the board of deacons is variable. Sometimes they meet with the board of deacons at the same time. Other times they simply consult with the board of deacons but meet at different times. I'm not sure what this church's practice is. But the point I'm trying to make is that clearly in the New Testament, deaconing is not limited to males. Interesting example of this, John Calvin, who's an early Protestant reformer, He's a theologian whose teachings significantly inform our branch of Presbyterianism. Calvin, in Geneva, in the 16th century, had two orders of deacons. He had one order that appears to be an administrative order. We might call that our formally ordained male deacons. But then he had another order, and I don't remember the French word that he used to describe it. Calvin was French. But he had another order that appeared to be something like what we might call a nurse. And he, he, one of the things that he bases this on is actually in 1 Timothy. If you look at 1 Timothy 5, in verse 3, he begins this long section on instructions to widows. And at one point, Calvin calls this an order of widows. And so there's an order of women in Calvin's Geneva that are actively involved in diaconal ministry with, if you will, the administrators of the diaconate. 
And out of that, we actually get our word hospital. The word hospital was, was developed in part in Calvin's Geneva. When Calvin came, there was a general hospital. No, not the soap opera. <laughs> the general hospital in Geneva had, was, was uh, there's a whole bunch of history here, and if, if you know some of this history, I'm not a, a great historian, but in any case, the hospital in Geneva essentially became the place where the, where the, the nurse ministries of, de- of deaconing was exercised and carried out. So we don't want to confuse the debates about how the diaconate is organized. Here's my point. When I talk about men who are ordained, I don't want us to confuse how this church organizes diaconal ministry from the responsibility that every one of you that are hearing my voice this morning have to do diaconal work. It is a general call for all Christians. It's not something we can leave to one particular person. And, and I'm going to mention this in a moment, neither is it something that we can allow or encourage or advocate or stand by when men who are ordained as deacons never actually branch out into diaconal work. And one of the applications I'm going to make at the end is that there is an important and a very strong need that any church, whether it has a building or not, to have people that will help open up the facility, close the facility, set up, you know, if, if, it's a church, if it's a new church, you've got to set up the sound equipment every time. You've got to make, there's all of these tasks, behind the scene tasks that are involved. Those are important, but properly speaking, they are not the direct work of the deacons. It's not directly speaking mercy ministry. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Part two, what does mercy ministry look like? I'd like us to turn to one. I'd like us to turn to one of Jesus's parables this morning in Luke chapter ten to get a picture of this. Verse twenty-five. It's a long text, so please be patient. The parable of the good Samaritan, Luke ten. Verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. 
and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So four B's on this. This could be a whole sermon of itself, as you can probably imagine. But just briefly, four B's. The background of this parable is the answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? What does it take to inherit eternal life? And the answer that Jesus receives is to love God and to love thy neighbor as thyself. So this isn't an irrelevant story. The background is about the, the, the summary of everything that the Bible teaches. So the horizontal love and the vertical love. That's it. That's the whole message. Second B, the boys in the parable. They're probably boys, right? Each of the boys in this parable have something else to do except the one who is, socially speaking, the lowest on the totem pole. It's only the Samaritan, the one on the margin, the outcast, that is able and willing to stop and help. Background boys, three, behavior. What is the behavior of this outcast? It's described as having compassion. Did you catch that phrase when we read it? He stopped and showed compassion. He had compassion. Mercy ministry, then, we can say, is compassion in action. It's not enough to have compassion in your mind. Oh, isn't that terrible? But to actually carry it out, to show it, to manifest it, to make it evident. Compassion, as I've defined it here, is a feeling of shared sympathy with someone who is in dire straits. Here's, here's a two-word sermon on compassion. Me too. So the Samaritan walked by and said, wow, me too. And he stopped and showed compassion. He had sympathy that didn't stop with feelings. It followed through with the concrete plan. And then finally, bidding. So background, boys, behavior, and bidding. What's the bidding that Jesus gives? What's his command? He says, go and do likewise. The command here that Jesus gives is, if that's true, if that's an example, if that's, if that's what loving God and loving neighbor looks like, then that's what you need to do. I think that each of these B's relates to the work of mercy ministry in the church. I'd like to focus on this idea of behavior, though, showing mercy, showing compassion. When the Samaritan saw this beat-up guy in the ditch he didn't walk by on the other side. And Jesus was careful to make that point that the others did. He wasn't primarily concerned about his reputation. He wasn't primarily concerned about his ceremonial holiness. Why not? Because he had none. He had no reputation. He had no ceremonial holiness. He was a Samaritan. I thought, how can I explain this to a modern audience? And then I thought, how about I read the paper this week? Oyama is a Tucson native of Japanese descent 
In Jordan was a white woman from Buffalo, New York, who moved to Tucson for health reasons. They met at the U of A and began dating. They fell in love. On October 6, 1959, Oyama, 33, a Spanish and U.S. history teacher at Pueblo High School, in Jordan, age 28, an American Airlines employee, were denied a marriage license in the office of the clerk of Pena County Superior Court. A state law prohibited the marriage of a person of Caucasian blood with a Negro, Mongolian, Malay, or Hindu. That's a quote, according to a star story. Oyama explained that the ruling was appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court, but was dismissed after the legislature repealed the law. Meanwhile, Oyama and Jordan did not wait. After Crucker's ruling, I and Marianne got married a week later at St. Augustine Cathedral. Oyama recalled the excellent preparation and presentation of his attorneys and said he was grateful for Crucker's insight. But the one that deserves my deepest gratitude and thanks is my late wife, said Oyama. She was the courageous one that faced the most opposition. In the 50s, in the 60s, and even in the 70s and 80s to a certain extent, and even to some extent today, interracial marriage was seen as, as something that's despised. And if you see or saw in that time a biracial couple, they would be rejected. They would be put off. Not so much the case today in all places, but certainly in some places still today. So that's a Samaritan. Is a biracial couple or even a person of mixed race descent in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, somewhere in the U.S. that you can think of in some geographic place. A person that's held at arm's length, a person that's despised, a person that couldn't hold office, a person that wouldn't be accepted as a leader in the church, a person that might not even be accepted in the building of a certain church. So I thought, maybe that would hit home. Maybe that would help us to understand that for this Samaritan, he had no reputation. He was already on the margins. He was a minority, okay? He was a person who had who had no status in the eyes of the powers that be. And I think the mercy that he showed is directly connected to that. There's something about being on the margins. There's something about being a minority. There's something about being outcast, about walking into the room and feeling, if not seeing, everyone basically turn their back on you that gives you compassion. It teaches you love and affection for those who themselves are being passed by. So I don't think it's an accident of the story or an incidental detail of the parable to note that the Samaritan was the one who showed compassion. And I don't think it was an accident that Jesus said, go and do likewise, imitate the Samaritan. Because in order to imitate the Samaritan, we have to understand that our true nature, our reality, greater than any ethnic heritage that we may have, is that we are outcasts and marginalized from a holy God who, if he were to be true to his nature without qualification, would cast us into the ditch for eternity. And so the deacons we want and the deacons we so desperately need as the people of God are deacons who understand that apart from the intervening mercy of God, they have no hope and they will die in the ditch. 
but that Jesus became an outcast for us. And he stopped and defiled himself, his ceremonial holiness, which he earned perfectly, unlike any other man in history. His ceremonial cleanliness was set aside to embrace a vile sinner like myself. And he bandaged me, and he covered me, and he took me to the hospital of God's grace and boosted me back to health, paid all of my debt, and called me into his diaconal service. And so he says, if you love your brother, you will lay down your life for him. And by saying life, he means the big thing, so that all the other little things are small by comparison. Those are the deacons that we need. And so the problem, you see, and now I'm coming to my application, the problem with churches that go to Timothy only for diaconal definition is that they miss this. They miss the message that Timothy becomes a list of the righteous qualifications of our deacons. And I'm not saying character is irrelevant or that we have to, we, you know, that just a wanton sinner who doesn't care about his conduct before a holy God can be ushered into the offices of, I'm not saying that. But is that really the problem that we face in this particular church? This is application now. This is where it gets a little hot. Where people start looking at their watches and saying, isn't that U of A starting now? Actually, it is. And I had, I had 10 application points, so we're going to have to be succinct here. But, okay, so we go to the list, and we check it twice. Santa Claus is going to see who's naughty and nice. And the nice kids get the presents, and the naughty kids get coal. But that's not the message of the church. That's not the message of Jesus. Somehow we can't get past the list to see the action that's called on. And sometimes, if, if you'll allow me to be so blunt, the men that are most qualified on this list are least qualified to do Luke 10 work in the world and in the church. It's counterintuitive. I don't have an answer for that. I'm actually a product of that. I have a master's degree in divinity of all things. I have mastered divinity. That's scary. You should be leaving for your cars right now. And yet I have been called on to speak to the church. You should, you should want a speaker. To, the, the speaker in the church that you want is the one who has not mastered divinity. I don't know how this works, but it has to find a way. As we think about missional church leadership, it has, we've got to find a way to raise up, in our context, men to the diaconal ministry and then broadly speaking, men and women doing diaconal ministry who, who are doing Samaritan work, who are Samaritans, who don't have it all together, and yet, by God's grace, are called to this office and to this office with a big O and office with a little O. I've been making lots of these applications throughout. If you want to read these, you can, you can, I will post this to, to the web and you can read it. But let me make a couple of applications of these ten. I, here's one, number three. The work of the deacons of this church, this is my humble opinion, not so humble opinion, should be taking the mission and vision cast by the pastors of the church, pastors meaning all, both kinds of elders, both teaching elders and ruling elders, taking the vision and putting it into action. 
the deacons are the action coalition of the church. That's what I think. And I believe, fourthly, you can tell the vitality of a church's ministry by the vitality of its, of its action of mercy. How active and how, how much is the budget for the ministries of mercy? You know, if there's a zero line item in a, in a budget of an organization, for example, if it's photocopies, zero. You've got the item there, and then there's a zero next to it. Probably not many copies being made in that organization. So the budget, in a way, is, 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 a, is a ones and zeros kind of a, a picture of the mission of the church. I think we also see, this is an interesting application, the three phases of mercy ministry in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Short term, binding up the wounds. Intermediate term, taking him to the end, to the hospital or to the hospice, or whatever. And then long term, here's two shekels, here's two denarii. Whatever else, whatever bills come up over the long term, let me know. So Ministries of Mercy in Tucson and Desert Springs have a short-term focus. I need help today. At the last church I visited last Sunday, in the front of the church were deacons, and in this church's case, they had deaconesses who were unordained women serving in, in mercy ministry roles. And they had the authority to give out a subway pass and a grocery card on the spot. It was like they were in their pocket. So that's short term, right? That's a short term fix. There's an intermediate term to our mercies of ministry. Okay, what do you need this week, this month, this year? It's kind of an intermediate term. And then there's a long-term vision. And here's what I think. The diaconal ministries of the church are uniquely suited to that long-term ministry. Society at large has lots of institutions that address short and intermediate-term needs, don't they? But long-term, what's the need of a person? Spiritual. Diaconal work starts physical, short-term, and then it moves, and it moves from primarily physical to being a primarily emotional and spiritual need. And that's where the church comes in. Because what other institution is so specifically called to address people's spiritual needs except the church of Jesus Christ? But we do need these other institutions, so I think it's important then as another application that our deacons are aware of and can educate us about the societal structures, everything from 911 and EMTs, right, to, to different care facilities that exist. And Tucson is an amazing community of care structures and facilities that are out there. Overwhelmingly secular, overwhelmingly not spiritual, but, but a lot of them do a really great job at what they do. And so our deacons need to be experts at this, and, or at least one of the deacons or someone in the church needs to be able to help connect the needs that people have to these cultural institutions. And this is a place, I think, where society can begin to see that the church is relevant. And this is another application. Sometimes people don't listen to you until you show them that you care. You never get the right to speak to someone spiritually until you've shown them that you care about their real life needs. Is that right? Is, is that how it should be? No, we should be able to just speak to people's needs right away. But that isn't how it happens. It's like almost like the feedback or the interference from, 
The arm that's hanging from a thread or whatever the need is, is so loud that they can't hear it. So we have to bend the knee, take up the towel, and serve in order to have a right to be heard. I think it's also important to point out that mercy ministry is not a blank check. Just because he says, whatever debts you accrue, I'll pay when I come back, that doesn't mean that any and all debts are appropriate. That there is, a, there is a place and a time for wisdom. In fact, we need deacons and deaconing that is wise and takes into account the, the sinfulness of people's hearts. In conclusion, I don't think that the, the takeaway point here is that Keith and Steve need to go out and get a first aid kit to carry in their car so if they drive down Oracle and they see somebody in the ditch, that they can give them a Band-Aid. But there is an application here to us thinking about showing compassion and being a church that's committed to having leaders that demonstrate that for us and not just defaulting to them, but actually striving for that ourselves. We need to be doing the deaconing, all of us. As the saying goes, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Jesus died and rose again, not to give us a lazy boy to heaven, but to give us, you know, guns as they were, muscles to fight for his cause as long as he tarries. There is a lot of work to do. There's a lot of serving to do. And we've got a lot of ground to make up because the church hasn't done a good job of this in recent generations. God is calling us to be a missional church, and that starts with serving. Let's ask him for help to do it. Father, we thank you that you've called us this morning to go and do likewise, and I thank you for these people who have given ear to these exhortations from Scripture. Lord, I pray that you'll help us. We need your strength. This is a tall order. Begin in our own hearts by helping us to see how much we need you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.